1: I would say I'm post-Christian, but I'm still Jesus (laughs) because until Christian stops meaning white hegemonic, white supremacy, leave church, lynch the people, stone the queers, what hate the women, rape the women, send the children back into molesting, when Christian stops being that, I might reclaim it, but I'm Mm. post-Christian and I'm still a Jesus follower.
2: From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Thou. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. So one thing about being at Harvard is that they make us read a lot. And it's not exactly a fun kind of reading. We're reading Marx, Honey. We're reading Freud. We're reading some guy named Schleiermacher. And there are explorations into things like secularism or colonialism and many usages of really pretentious words like ontological and hegemony, which I mispronounced in front of like a hundred people as hegemony, and the ultimate div school professor's favorite word, which is normative. And the entire time I've been preparing for Divinity School, I've been sharing that gif of Elle Woods like a little shit. You know, the one where she's like, what? Like, it's hard? And it turns out it actually is.
3: It is really
2: hard. And I would curse, but I'm around reverends, so I will not curse in front of holy people. The good thing about hard work, though, and of course the privilege of going to school as an adult, specifically in a school that is about answering life's bigger questions, is that it really does make you think. And one of the things I keep thinking about, especially because I came here to Divinity School to reclaim God for myself, is what role does Jesus play in all of this? What role does Christianity play in all of this? And this is relevant because Christianity, despite people leaving the pews year after year, is still the most dominant religion in the world. And how it got there is a complicated story. But let's just say Christianity wouldn't hold the power it still holds in society without being caught up in. And in many cases itself being a white patriarchal power structure. So in school, we're taught or we're being taught to make the connections from Christian thought to colonialism, which in turn entangles Christianity with things like the transatlantic slave trade, which then entangles it with policing, which then entangles it with harmful governance around queer and feminine bodies and more. And it seems that year after year, more people are connecting Christianity with all the bad things in the world. Some people say that that's because white supremacist and right-wing Christians have given Christ a bad name. Others say Christianity was rotten at its core to begin with. And these are intense blanket moral judgments to grapple with, but they are increasingly becoming at least a cultural reality that, at least in my eyes, modern Christianity has trouble grappling with in a meaningful and dynamic way. All the while, conservative Christianity continues to grip America, an America that imagines itself as secular. And we can just look at the Supreme Court's recent ruling on abortion for evidence that secularism is indeed uh, a myth of American society. So there's this Audrey Lorde essay from Sister Outsider that we had to read for our first week of Divinity School. And Lorde says, The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and I immediately thought, if this is true, and for the record, I do believe it to be true, then what does that say about all of us fighting to give Christianity a good name? In other words, in a more modern parlance, in a more L. Woods kind of parlance, is Jesus still the vibe? So to help me grapple with this very big and very dangerous question, I've invited some of the people I respect the most in the faith space to hash it out with me. First, we have my fellow Harvard Divinity School Masters of Religion and Public Life colleague, the Reverend Erica Williams. Erica is doing incredible work with the Poor People's Campaign and uses her faith and womenist theology to achieve justice in the world for all. Welcome, Erica.
4: Thank you. So honored to be here.
2: Next up, my dear friend, the celebrated author of the groundbreaking memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, and a sought-after speaker and intellectual who also happens to look incredible and head to toe Prada. Darnell Moore. Hi, Darnell. (laughs) hi it's good to see you
3: i can't stand you
2: (laughs) i'm also honored to welcome reverend jackie lewis a feminist theologian and the senior minister at new york's middle church her newest book is fierce love a bold path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world welcome reverend jackie
1: hey good to be with you
2: Thank you. And finally, a woman I'm deeply indebted to who we are welcoming back to Unholier Than Now. her Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Mary Magdalene Revealed, helped inspire me to start this journey at Divinity School. Her feminist vision of Christianity and the justice she seeks for Mary Magdalene and other rebels in Christian history are endlessly inspiring. Welcome, Megan
5: Watterson. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Okay. So big questions
2: today. We have a little bit of time to answer some very complicated questions, so I want to dive right in, and I want to start by offering this to the group, whoever feels comfortable answering. And I want to start here because I think it's important to start from a vulnerable place. So my question is, have any of you, similarly to me, lost faith in Jesus or Christianity at any point along your spiritual journey, or... Are any of you grappling with this feeling right now? And what did that feel like for you?
3: When I was at Princeton um, Theological Seminary, um, you know, I was warned I was warned by some professors, like, you're going to go there and you're going to like, lose your faith. <laughs> um, and what I discovered while a seminary student, which is also a point in which I was really reconciling the the I like to call them the theologies that kill um, with theologies that heal, um, particularly as it related to my personhood and my, my coming into myself as a, a Black queer person of faith um, who had been taught for so long that the God that they loved, the God that they sought, the God that they helped other people connect to, hated him, right? Um, it was in seminary where I left the institutional church. actually, I was uh, suspended from my ministerial preparation, um, not because of my queerness, but because the church at the time said pretty much, I was given too much attention, hear this, to my seminary studies <laughs> than I was to the church. I know, I know, I don't it, yeah. Um, but it's, it, it is a point where I left the institutional church, partly because I needed to heal myself. And it called, I called into question a whole bunch of things, not only sort of my relationship to Jesus, um, what I, who I thought historical Jesus is, was, um, my relationship to Christian faith, um, and the complicated questions I had asked and, and the complicated answers that I had found about it. Um, and still to this day, I find my, I always say I'm spiritual, and I ground myself as a church boy. Um, I'm, a, I'm in some ways recuperating church boy, and so much of what I know, I know to be good about the story of Christ in that I understand Christ as a uh, example of, 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 of someone who offers us radical possibility and what it might mean to sort of undo empire, right? Um, that for me has been at the sort of been the grounding for my own theology making and my own understanding of Christianity in in the same spirit in which Black folk within the context of the U.S. empire has always queer theology, right? And queer by virtue of like deconstructing, raising it, um, developing new ways of thinking. Um, So I I guess I'm answering the question, and what did that feel like? It felt like if to borrow from the Bible stories, right, okay, fine, preaching a little bit, but when we talk about the the children of God, the Israelites, uh in, in Old Testament stories, who at some points felt the separation from not only when, when God is absent, quote unquote, there's this sort of feeling of um this deathly experience of abandonment, of isolation. And I experienced that when I left both the institutional church, meaning I left my entire community behind and also a distancing between myself and the God that others had created for me. And that was like a funeralizing, mourning, grieving period that still have resonances today, Um, but I feel much more, um, like after most funerals, part of burying the thing is about becoming into a new sense of self and a new way of being and and in so many ways, it's been transformative.
1: I I would love to to dive in on the tail end of of what Darnell shared particularly the word queered really resonates for me. A straight, mostly straight, I think black married woman who feels like I've been queered in my theological journey, uh, particularly in New York. Um, yeah, I grew up as a Christian in the womb of the mother. Like you didn't have a choice. They were Southern Baptists. You drop into this family, you become Presbyterian. I get it that the Baptist church and the Presbyterian church are different that there's grace, like I'm, I get it at seven when I take communion and I'm like, oh my God, my mom says, this bread means God will always love you. This cup means God will never leave you. And then I'm in search of that theology for decades, like that simple, I love you, I won't leave you. And that's not what you get, right? Especially as a girl child, you get, keep your panties up, you get, you know, don't have sex, you get don't all the don't know mo's. And if you're, as long as you're in the don't know mo's, you're good and you're Christian and you're holy no talk about justice really in the church, but my history, my my great uncle George marched with Fannie Lou Hamer to register voters. Like my, my story, you know, uh, J- James Cheney is buried in my father's cemetery in, in the Meridian. So that was in the blood, but like, I didn't get it in church, radical love, revolutionary love. I didn't get it in church. The love of your neighbor means lay down on the ground and die in. I didn't get it in the church that your queer siblings are, Absolutely made in the image of God and beautiful and fierce and you sh- and and love them. So I've been on a journey in which I was able to keep, keep Jesus. I don't I don't know if that makes sense. I got clear that Jesus was black, Palestinian, poor, marginalized. And di- really my friend, like savior, mm, friend, yes. Like what a friend we have in Jesus. I got that mm-hmm. young. So I was able to keep Jesus with me, Darnell, as I was pushing and shoving and outside of the box and trying to create a theology for myself that could work for me so I could authentically preach, authentically lead my community. So I would say I'm post-Christian, but I'm still Jesus. <laughs> because until Christian stops meaning white, hegemonic, white supremacy, leave church, lynch the people, you know, stone the queers, what? hate the women, rape the women, send the children back into molesting. When Christian stops being that, I might reclaim it. But I'm a post-Christian and I'm still a Jesus follower.
3: I'm about to run around my house.
1: <laughs> you know, what's with the shiny white baby on the Christmas cards? No, hell no. You know, give me give me Jesus. give Fix me, Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me the one who walked my great grandmother to sleep when she was, had been beaten by her master. Like I'm I'm with that Jesus. And I'm, I'm post.
4: Yes. Lord, the saints (laughs) done stirred me up in this place. So I got to get in here now. And and so at the end of the day, I'm exactly where you are. (laughs) So this train is flowing and I'm going to get on it and go. And so at the end of the day, I am exactly where you are, Reverend Jackie, in terms of my 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 view of the white blue-eyed Jesus that my grandmother had in her bedroom, Oof. that version of Jesus died. Uh, but then I resurrected, as you said, that, that brown skinned brother who mm-hmm. I call him Yeshua, he arose in me and I began to search for him through the lens of my African spirituality context. Mm-hmm. And so I began to see that Jesus was an ancestor as, as mm-hmm. Reverend Dr. Melvin Sampson talks about mm-hmm. how he was somebody who came back through a lineage of freedom fighters who came, you know, into the world to bring this message of liberation. And mm-hmm. so that resurrected for me, when I hit a low, a low place in my life, when I almost wanted to commit suicide a few years ago. And I was like, I'm going to church every Sunday here and preaching and teaching, but this shit ain't doing nothing for me because I'm going back home still saying, how am I going to get free? How am I going to live a life that I believe Christ came in this earth for all people to live. And so when I understood that Christ was connected to that African spirituality that I'm connected to, then I saw, okay, let me holler at these ancestors who came in my own lineage and be able to tap into their power and how they survived. Because I believe Jesus showed us when he said, excuse me, when he went to the Mount of Transfiguration, when Elijah and Moses showed up for him, he let us know my ancestors got my back. And so that's what made for me the clear clear distinction of that is what we have to see Jesus was an ancestor he was an african brother who knew that he had the power because of his lineage and so that's when i began to see jesus in a different way i began to see jesus was a part of my lineage and he was my ancestor and that i had the power to go out and do the exact same work that he did i I'd,
5: I'd like to say that you know for me i was reluctant i i was I never wanted to be. The church terrified me. Seeing a cross was uh, scary for me. I I was raised by a flaming feminist and I had a beloved gay brother who, you know, was going through a lot of trauma and trying to come out. And so the idea of ever being Christian wasn't it wasn't even something that I was, you know, well, I wasn't even really allowed. I mean, my my mom is a feminist. We we were marching for women's rights, you know, when I was just a teen. And, but it was the body for me. It was what I felt. It It wasn't something I ever asked for or wanted. It was something that happened to me that I could feel. It wasn't words. It wasn't, it wasn't even liturgy. It was being overcome and listening to what I felt when I heard the truth. Like when, when I experienced a love, that was something, I mean, we talk about love, but it's, this isn't, that's not it. This is, this is radical, radical love, love. And so for me as a young girl, with a history of you know, sexual assault, to be in my body, to trust my body, to listen to my body, even when I didn't want anything to do with what was happening to me when you know, I would hear uh, you know, a, a, a song about Christ, or like when I would you know, encounter something that would bring me into that state of Christ, um, I had to listen. Uh, And that so to me, this this path of knowing Christ had everything to do with learning how to actually be in my body and to trust my body because the body never lies for me. And so it eventually led to scholarship because I wanted to figure out what was this Christ that was going on inside of me versus the Christ I met with when I went into a church. And Christ I met with, you know, in the Christian right, who had grabbed the microphone for what Christ was. and so I had to reconcile those two Christ, you know the 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 blonde Jesus and and the Christ that was telling me, we have to work and work and work at bringing this love that is the truth into humanity into, you know bring it in a way that it has never been seen before, never been shown before. Like what, and what I found, which was so, you know, so powerful and unbelievable was that when I pieced back together the scripture that wasn't included in the compilation of the canon in the fourth century, you know, scripture like the Acts of Paul and Thecla, where you learn about, Decla, who was ministering right alongside Paul. Everyone knows about Paul, but no one knows about Decla. When you piece back together those scriptures, the gospel of, of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Thomas, you see that, you know, rather than this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Christ telling women what they can and cannot do with their bodies— Christ is this radical Middle Eastern man liberating all of us from the illusion that anyone outside of us could ever dictate our worth. Um, And there was a power in that, that uh, to this day um, inspires me and leads me and guides me and is, is what I'm here for, is that you know, reconciliation of the Christ that's presented by those who would like to hold power versus the Christ that is a power that exists within every one of us. And it is called love.
2: That's a beautiful articulation. And thank you all so much for sharing and and being vulnerable and sharing your stories. Um, To bring it back to the Lord quote, which was about the master's tools, not being able to dismantle the master's house. But I feel like I'm hearing from everyone is that the church is the master's house and y'all are not talking about using the master's tools in that sense that using what christ originally taught is not actually what the church implemented and what the church is about am i hearing that right so if we are following christ we can use Christ's tools to dismantle the master's house which, which house which is this patriarchal institution of the church as it stands is that is that fair
1: i think it's fair and I think there's other there's other tools we're talking about too, right? Like I think, you know, when I hear Erica talk about, you know, through her African spirituality, I know Darnell's story. Um, I'm I'm really just meeting Megan, but I've read her work. I understand. So there's other tools, and I think maybe what happens, uh, love, is that we don't feel liberated. We Christians don't feel liberated to use other tools to get back to Jesus. Right. So this conversation. So Megan says, you know, I, I ended up in scholarship. I think I think we would say all of us did in a way. And so the tools were psychology and the tools was narrative and the tools was women's writing. The tools was Katie Cannon and, you know, um, you know, Dolores Williams. I mean, they, the, the tools were people who weren't afraid to ask the questions. And then I find a tool called really yeshua really the jewish rabbi and i find him sometimes in israel with rabbis right like i i I find i find him in extra canonical books. so i'm going to say education is a tool that dismantles the bull the, the parts of christianity that are bad and and spirit is a tool and uh protest is a tool and exploration is a tool and rule breaking is a tool and radical love is a tool and that helps us to dismantle what has been erected in the name of Jesus.
2: Erica, I'm wondering as a reverend who's working with the Poor People's Campaign, how obviously your goal and the goal of the Poor People's Campaign is to help elevate um, and also, I guess, help to liberate folks, especially folks who are living in poverty. Can, Can you talk about how You've taken and you've learned what the church needs for someone who's ordained, but then you're living it in this way that is perhaps untraditional for a lot of folks who are in ministry.
4: Yeah. So I, yes, am grateful for the the journey that I, you know, have had with the Poor People's Campaign because you know i am truly in belief that that the work of in ending poverty is so critical like that's what christ came to do but i'm 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 going in a route now um, i'm preparing to launch this ministry called set it off ministry and so when i say set it off i hope all of you have seen the movie set it off that came out in 1996 this year is actually the 25th anniversary of the film and so you see in that movie four black women who were impacted by being low wage workers they were impacted by living in shitty housing they were impacted by their you know sexuality being questioned and they being challenged um they had mental health you know crises that they were going through they couldn't afford to take care of their children so here you got four black women on display really showing exactly what was happening at that time and i would still say happening at this time And so not one time did F. Gary Gray in that movie show any emphasis of faith. I didn't find it. If anybody can find it, you come back and let me see it. He didn't mention faith one time. No no questions of religion or anything. And so I was like, it's interesting that this movie set it off, came out, and not one emphasis on faith was was put forth on the table. And so I began to think about something. I said, well, wait a minute. I believe when Yeshua stepped on the scene, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to the protokos, to the house of Bethany, those made poor by society, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord now, which meant the Jubilee, the canceling of debts. And then he said, look at here, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. They said, well, only the Messiah could say that. He basically said, look at here, look at here. I am here. And he went on (laughs) setting that thing off all throughout the towns and the regions. And so I put the parallels together. I said, Yeshua, that ancestor of mine, along with these sisters from Set It Off, they got the revelation. They got the revelation, I believe, Brother Malcolm also got when he said, by any means necessary. And so that's when I began to see, like, okay, these tools, they're not going to come from being in that church. That's what Fannie Lou Hamer, she said, Christianity ain't about sitting up in no walls. It's about being in the streets with the people. That's where Jesus was. And so that's why I'm on this mission now. We got to set some shit off. Excuse me, preachers and and teachers and theologians. We got to set some shit off in these streets because we've been too passive. And the church has had too many people trying to be chaplains of the empire and not prophets of God. And so we've got to (sighs) understand in this hour, it is clear. It is so clear. And I'm a black queer woman, honey. I take it real serious. I know that the church ain't going to be the one to come along and save me. It's going to be them sisters that set it off like in that movie. It's going to be folks like Fannie Lou Hamer. It's going to be folks like Pracy Hall. It's going to be folks like Jarena Lee. It's going to be folks like Katie Geneva Cannon. It's going to be folks like Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. Because I take my, my blueprint from Black women. That's what I'm following, and that is what I'm on my path of trying to use the tools Black women have used all alone, making ways out of no ways, to set this shit off.
1: I just want to come <laughs>
2: over there right now and sign up. <laughs> <laughs> sign me up,
3: too. Erica does this in class every day. It is... Tra- <laughs> joining that ministry. Me (laughs) too. Stat. Put that stuff in
1: the chat right now. Amen. Help you out. That's powerful, Sister Cole.
2: And I like it because what we're talking about is sort of carving a new path for Christianity. And I think imagining the Christian future and what the Christian imagination can look like is the only place I've been able to find any sort of solace Because as much as I wanted to come here and abandon Christianity and find a new faith to prescribe to and a new community to join or whatever, I'm like taking this class about Teresa of Avila. (laughs) And I'm just like, shit, this is so cool. (laughs) You know, like I thought I was going to leave Christianity behind. And now Harvard has me rethinking that entirely. Like the fabric of my being is is being really questioned here. Um, And so I love thinking of what the Christian imagination is. I want to get to that, but first I want to talk about, and I think it's most important to talk about, what accountability looks like for Christianity, Um, because we're talking about a a whole host of things. Christianity's ties to manifest destiny also tie it to ecocide, right? Christianity is tied to the forced conversions of indigenous folks and other peoples all over the world, which is cultural erasure and cultural violence, right? Um, Christianity is meddling in international politics to this day, to enforce a Christian agenda that has curbed LGBTQ rights and women's bodily autonomy. The, I mean, the list could go on and on, as as all of you know. So I- in one way, I, I do want to talk about the future and what the future looks like in all of your eyes, your brilliant, beautiful eyes. But first I want to say, or I want to really pose the question, what does Christianity need to do... In order to help right the wrongs, it has been a part it has been a part of, and how do we as individual actors or as communities hold Christianity accountable because it seems like an impossible thing?
3: I guess I can jump in and say that um, I've been meditating a lot on a notion of an abolitionist theology, which to me ties both the use of a radical imagination to collectively think about future with the reckoning that one must do, that we must do with all of the ways that we've been complicit, the church has been complicit in the maintenance of um, white supremacists, heteropatriarchal um, and <laughs> culture, politics, legislation, ways of being for some time. So what I mean, and, and let me just name something, and, and it's been a thread in what I've been hearing. Big shout out to the Black feminist and Black women, um, Marion Caba and Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore and Angela Davis. Um, and, and I mean, we can go back all the way to sort of like you know Frederick Douglass and, and and so many other ancestors. W. B. Du Bois, for whom abolitionism, you know, be the grounds for how we think about an abolitionist politic right now, we owe to so many people who have give, gifted us this. But one of the things that Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says about abolition, and we can think about this in terms of abolitionist theology, is this: like abolition is not about just a destru- destroying of the things that don't work for us, right? It's not just about. It's a lot of focus is on like let's get rid of the shit that ain't working. Abolitionism really is about a, a a reimagining of what needs to go in the place of the things that have harmed us. Now, if that is not a type of if that requires, isn't that faith? <laughs> I always say abolitionist theology is a is a is a faith work. It is a it is a imagining of what needs to be in the place of the systems and the institutions that have done us harm. And if the church is at the center of that right? It means we have to look at the church and reckon with its complicities. And not just complicities, but with its direct actions. And reckoning ties to sort of costly love and grace, which deals with accountability. And it means that we got to raise the things that's not working and collectively reimagine what needs to be in its place, what Robin Culley calls like using our radical imagination or our freedom dream to build it. So there's work to be done there. And I think I claim an abolitionist theology or an abolitionist approach or practice to sort of what we're calling Christianity, because it means inevitably if we're going to become a a better version or a new version of what we need to be, we got to do away with all of the things that have brought us to be brought to bear and, and harmed folk, um, and brought us to where we are right now.
1: I'm I'm struggling with I'm struggling with the word Christianity. I just want to say that again not because I don't believe in Christ, I do, Um, absolutely. But I do wonder if we're ever gonna be able to get to the abolitionist theology, to a real womanist ethic, to a real freedom, liberation, liberative theology, to fierce love, which is the theology that I'm trying to be with, which is about dismantling and reconstructing. It is about critiquing, it is about disavowing, it is about confession. It is about being honest, 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 and and I'm I'm not a linguist. I'm a theologian and a psychologist, but words really matter. And so, if we keep saying Christian and we don't actually have a moment to pause and say what we mean by that and what we don't mean by that, I just want to offer that for all of us as how do what what else could we do? What Mm -hmm. else could we call it? I just I'm scared of, of us continuing to use that word, and I don't know what the new one would be. But mm. I would say I would say that requires a holy imagination. I just would think it would require imagination to describe the thing better that we do want to cause, you know, to have happen, to give birth to. At the last chapter of this book, I, I end up going like I, I am trying to convert you. Mm. I am trying to proselytize you. I am mm. coming for you. I am. Don't let me pretend like I'm not. Love is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes into God except through love. So I don't, like if my tribe are Jewish people who get it, if my tribe is Muslim people who get it, if my tribe is atheists or Buddhists who get it, I'm good with them being in my tribe. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good with who knows how to love fiercely the way Erica and Darnell and Megan. Who knows how to do that? Sign up. Let's all be in that the house. <laughs> Please don't fire me my church.
3: No, I know. <laughs> Can I just say like I love that so much? It's it, and for me, I'm so glad you said it because it's I'm often say Christianities plural. Because there is that Christianity that you name, but there's also the Christianity of like Howard Thurman and like black queer women. Like there, like I'm, you know, so there are Christianities and which which version are we trying to um get rid of and re- reimagine
4: Ooh, I just Fannie Lou Hamer is my patron saint. <laughs> and um, I'm I'm reading this book right now uh, The Revolutionary Practices of, of Fannie Lou Hamer And I think about her You know, who she was a sharecropper Down there in, in, in Ruleville, Mississippi And she, you know, just, I mean, had it rough I mean, we can even talk about how she was sterilized You know, how Black women down in the South Like the reproductive rights were taken And mm-hmm. so, just so many things but Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, at 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 the age of forty-three, came into this work of the movement when they did a mass meeting down there in Mississippi. And Fannie, who ain't never went to nobody's, you know, seminary, she ain't had no education, but Fannie Lou Hamer was very clear. She she she. She could preach better than any of the preachers. I mean, and I and I struggle with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who I know we all love, but he also, you know, had some challenges. She wasn't well learned and all that. So so that's a whole conversation about, you know, how patriarchy has just done so much uh, in the name of Christianity. But however, Fannie Lou Hamer, the one who said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. She loved her Jesus. That woman stood flat-footed in her faith, and that's what was allowed her to do the work that we don't often talk about now. I'm so grateful for, for scholars like Keisha Bland and, and, and even you know Reverend Dr. Karen Krozer, who is bringing her story to the forefront, because folks like that, we have got to hear the Jesus that they followed. Like, I, I, I don't wanna get all into the politics of all of what it was, but I know it was something, as the song says, something inside so strong that made Fannie Lou Hamer stand flat-footed against america i i I said to you last night philip when she spoke at the democratic national convention lyndon Baines johnson didn't cut king off he cut fannie lou hamer off Mm -hmm. because he didn't want america to hear this black woman telling about how they were living down in the south because she got on there and said is this america the home of the free well we have to cut our phones off because we, we we can't get any respite or any help down there i'm paraphrasing it but i say all that to say there is something in the power of christ and i don't like the term christianity but there is something in the power in of christ. that christ right. that has been labeled our ancestors to fight on and to challenge this nation so 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 even though white folks have claimed it and have taken it and used it as a, as a form of oppression damn it it's some black folk who have survived and stood in the power of that revolutionary christ and said to america be with the hell you said you would be and if you don't we coming for you yeah. mm-hmm. through the power yeah. of christ
2: Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-founded canned wine brand on a mission to transform the alcohol industry as we know it, creating a voice for women when there has never truly been one and doing so in a kind and approachable way. Their wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy. Super refreshing and delicious. Plus, they are all zero sugar and only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. There are six varietals, rosé, sauve blanc, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, and their recently launched sparkling rose called Glam and Glitz. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each one is a glass and a half of wine, perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. A 24 pack is equal to eight bottles of wine, making it a great value. Their four packs are great for gifting or hosting, and they're perfect for New Year's goals like cutting back on sugar or drinking. Bev makes it easy to have a glass of wine and not overindulge. Plus, Bev is offering two-day shipping straight to your door, and shipping is always free. we worked out a special deal for our listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack, so you can check out all of their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash unholy, or use code unholy at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot slash unholy. Bev can also be found at retailers nationwide, including Target, Total Wine, BevMo, and more. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by ZocDoc. Has this ever happened to you? You need to see a doctor, you search and find one that looks good, you wait on hold to book an appointment, you rearrange your schedule, and when you finally go in to find out this doctor doesn't even take your insurance... Luckily, there's a solution. You can download the free Zocdoc app, which is the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With Zocdoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or on video chat. You never have to wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, Zocdoc has you covered. Go to zocdoc.com/unholy and download the Zocdoc app to sign up for free. Every month, millions of people use Zocdoc. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com unholy and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's zocdoc.com/ slash unholy. Unholier Than Now is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment, and it's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling. And you can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And... It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Plus, luckily, financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide, and there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. For instance, licensed professional counselors are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, trauma, anger, family conflicts, and more. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is super convenient. It's professional, affordable, and... If you don't take our word for it, you can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com Unholy. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P Unholy. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by More Than This, a new podcast from Vox Creative and Straight Talk Wireless. After this past year, you probably know of at least one person who decided to change things up. It might have been moving across the country, leaving that toxic job, or maybe realizing you're ready to adopt that pet. And we usually only talk about how those stories end, when in reality, the far more interesting moments probably happened right in the middle. More Than This is a new podcast following individuals who chase their own personal what ifs and the life altering shifts they experienced along the way. Hosted by fashion editor and my friend turned author Danielle Prescott, More Than This comes from Vox Creative and Straight Talk Wireless. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Megan, I wanted to also just offer the floor to you because a lot of what you've done in the wake of the publishing of Mary Magdalene Revealed is is set up um, convenings for folks who connected with the book, but who may not connect with so-called Christianity, right? And um, I was one of those people. I did not get a chance to go to the retreat that you organized. But there was a lot of people who were interested in the concept of the divine feminine, um, of uh, serving justice to women who have been scorned by biblical or Christian theology. Um, And a lot of that is central to your work of kind of rebuilding or challenging the imagination or creating a new imagination. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on this so-called Christian or maybe not Christian, but of Christ imagination. Uh,
5: that that word, um, I was really moved with the, you know, that struggle with that word Christian. And, um, f- you know, for me, I've been called Christian, but I've never called myself Christian. Um, I've always struggled with it um, because... When I did do the research, when I did immerse myself in the Christ that I felt coming from within me um, or reaching me from within me, I really encountered a system, a radical system of belief that in, for the first four centuries, if you called yourself a Christian, you were killed that's how radical it was because you were such a threat to empire you were such a threat to the whole idea of what it meant to be human the the roman uh hierarchy was was very entrenched in terms of oh who you were and then what your existence was worth you know and so that that hierarchy with caesar up there greater than God. There was no one greater or had more power than Caesar. And then slaves and women with their no rights, no power down at the bottom. And for me, the Christ I was encountering in in the scripture that had been considered, you know, non-canonical, apocryphal, you know, heretical, that Christ wanted to turn that hierarchy on its head and say, you know, the first is last and the last is first. That was the Christ I felt. I knew by heart. And when I had the scripture as well, I felt this sense of really believing that we actually haven't tried Christianity out yet. Christianity was co-opted by empire when Constantine wanted, you know, this radical, radical uh, religion uh, to be um, made into the empire's religion. And then it changed, you know, then it became about power. Um, it, so for me, I felt like, well, we haven't really, uh, in, in, in terms of an institution, um, witnessed that uh, form of radical love, you know, the, the love that Perpetua, for example, was killed for by calling Felicitas, um, the slave, her sister. You know, and they they were killed together for calling themselves Christians. Um, and this was a a form of belief, a form of knowing in Christ, or moving where it, to love another person is to say that I have as much worth, as much rights, as much power as that person, and anyone who's going to take that power away from me or my sister or my brother, um, you know, I, that is me, you know, that, that is me. I cannot separate myself from that person. That to me is what I believe in. So I, I teared up when, um, Reverend Lewis was, was struggling with that word because it, for me, it has been really real because, um, I, I am that, I am that, that, um, would die in in the name of of that price i I am that um but uh to align myself in any way with the Christianity I encounter um that you know practices the exact opposite of that would be antithesis to you know it would contradict everything every fiber of what I feel inside of me, so it's a real struggle for me that I live and this to me is is worship though this to me this conversation what i'm experiencing and hearing um each of you share that to me is um uh it's bringing that into life it is making that uh manifest it's 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 showing that it it you know nothing good can ever be lost you know
2: i loved the um the notion of abolitionist theology because it it hits in a funny way on on something that i was thinking about which was How do you abolish the police and support abolishing the police, but also go to church on Sunday into a Christian environment, right? Like, how do we want to topple the patriarchy, but then worship a God the Father, right? Or worship a male-centered religion. And these are just tensions that, you know, I think a lot of young people especially are feeling really innately, especially because for young people, the stakes feel really raised right we are going to inherit an earth that is imploding upon us as we speak um, we are uh, maybe uniquely feeling um, some of the ramifications of just general existentialism um, and I think that's another reason why why young folks are feeling a disconnect or like this inability to walk into church or um, a connection to the church experience. And so it was kind of those things I had in mind when I was thinking about Middle Church too, right? And Reverend Lou is what you're doing at at Middle Church because it's such a radically different experience. And it does, um, similarly to Megan, it does make me emotional because it's like, if I had met you when I was a kid, maybe I wouldn't have left faith or spirituality, you know, like maybe I wouldn't have left the pew, but obviously you're still part of the church, right? So even as you're struggling with Christianity as a word, right, even as you're nodding your head, as Darnell is talking about abolitionist theology, you're still in the (laughs) church, right? So, so, so how do you, how do you do it? Right? Like how, how does it exist? And and what are you doing differently? Or what, what do you want to do differently? What are you working towards differently?
1: Middle church and I together make middle church. Like I inherited this community from this white Dutch bill bottom wearing professional clown named Gordon Drop senior minister. Like he was all like, you know, married straight, but totally LGBTQI, loving and friendly and opened the doors to the church during the AIDS crisis that really just opened the doors so everybody could come in They and everybody came. Everybody came. And then a guy named Jerese Johnson, a black actor, started the gospel choir. And it was like Jerese and the Pips, him and three white ladies singing. Uh, but they grew into this gospel choir. <laughs> so, I mean, what I'm saying is it, it, It is middle church that has queered me. And it is middle church that has liberated me. It is middle church that has helped me find my theological center and voice and what I don't do and what I do do and what I feel and what I claim and what I keep. And if I could call it middle something besides church, I would. That's (laughs) true. So that it would not communicate at all a barrier to people. And so I do believe that our preaching and our teaching is very universalist, very multi-culty, very um, gender fluid, very like you, like Sunday we sing some Luther Vandross. is his homecoming Sunday. And one of my best baritones is singing a house is not a home where there's no way. I mean, we will bring you some Broadway. We will bring you some, you know, some uh, African drums. We will bring you some dance. And I'm not talking about hair flowing around. I'm talking tap ballet. I mean, so art and justice and love meets each other at the middle and to create a radical welcome that if I could stay there for the rest of my life, I would never leave. And that I believe in. I believe in all oh, of that. Beautiful. I just do. And they make it. They make it. The people who journey there and try to figure it out together, our young people on the pulpit loving each other. Like, I, so, and, and it's a movement, right? 400 people joined us honey, during COVID from all over the world, Japan, Ireland, because people want that. So that's what you want. That's what I want. We yeah. wanna feel safe, right, Erica? We wanna do make a difference. We want everyone to have enough. We want everyone to be liberated. We want to ab- ab- abolish all the crap. That's what we want. And if we gotta call that church because we don't have a better word, okay. But it's community. And, and what's the religion? The religion is the religion of Yeshua Ben Joseph. That, that's the religion. But not only him; it's also the religion of the Buddha, right? It just is. It's it's not that we have a, a monopoly on goodness and love. So, how do we do that together?
2: Yes, I I I I think that's so important, right? And I love what you're pointing to. Also, the the initial question I asked in in the L. Woods voice was: Is Jesus the vibe? And it's it's funny because. I think one thing we're kind of hinting at or maybe getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's not that Jesus isn't um, an answer and isn't part of the solution. It's just that maybe it's not the whole solution. Maybe we need all of our collective wisdoms from all of our collective cultures and ancestry and upbringings to come together and, and find and find the answer to the problems that we're dealing with. And Christianity has felt essentialist and absolutist in its, in its way, right?
1: And not always. Not and, always. Right? So Jesus is the vibe, but also Ubuntu is the vibe. Yes. Right? I am because we are is the vibe. Deeply embedded in all of the world's religions is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do unto others as, they, as you'd have them do. unto you don't withhold from your neighbor what you want for yourself. One religion says, just don't break anybody's heart. <laughs> that's, that's, we're all African, and this is African deep spirituality, that I am because you are, I, that, that's what it is. And whoever that vibes, I think that's how we're gonna heal each other. I gotta
4: get in here, Philip. I'm on. sorry, <laughs> if we go to another yeah.
1: question, you can't say
4: African spirituality. I have to say this, because Reverend Jackie, you, you, you tapped this. It's because like, even how I see what set it off, is that it's non-traditional. Like, we go, like, our theme song for Set It Off is Spirit by Beyonce. Because that to me is the (laughs) symbolic nature of what we're seeking to bring forward, like, what's inside of us to bring that power. You know, the emblem for it is a lioness. Like, it's time for us lioness to roar. And it was funny, I went to Kenya a few weeks ago, and I went to the Nairobi National Park, and I saw four lioness. (laughs) I knew that that was nothing but spirit saying to me, this is Cleo and yeah. Frankie, and come on somebody, y'all know the <laughs> folks that set it off. So connecting that, but I also say, I've got to bring in Oshun, mm-hmm. and I wear Oshun around my necklace because see, when I was at my lowest point in 2018, and I was like, really not knowing where the next day was gonna come because I was such in a deep depression. It was when I began to call on the name of Oladumare and calling on the name of Oshun that I began to tap into my own spirituality and own nature and was able to resurrect myself. And so that is why I'm so clear. Like when we, when, when we do these church spaces, we, you know, I love middle church. I love middle church for all the creativity you bring, but it's so clear in this hour now, as we are, you know, we're in a new world, a whole new world. We can't go back to business as usual. I don't even know what people keep talking about normal. Leave that alone. We've got to tap back into some traditional practices. And so for set it off, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have Bible studies where we where we bring in the conversation of, of Audrey Lord. you know what I mean? And, and, and bring in the conversations. you know, of a set it off and let people see the film and see that and talk about political economy. It's not going to be just we bring in and just talk about what the scripture said, because, you know, the scripture said it, but also Buddha might have said it. Also, Allah might have said it. Hell, also your grandma might have said it, because I see grandma as a primary source. And my grandma said a lot of stuff. I always tell people she had an eighth grade education, but a Ph.D. in common sense. So at the end of the day, I'm going to bring in all the texts so people can see. And it may be Cardi B one day, because Cardi B said a whole bunch of songs that have liberated me from my dark Mm -hmm. place and in my pit. So I think we have to re-envision and see that there are primary sources all over that can get us to our liberation. Mm-hmm. That's
1: very womanist. That is womanist. Mm-hmm. That's what we've learned from our womanness that the texts that liberate us are everywhere in our stories, in our music, in our art, in our ancestors. And by the way, Ubuntu, and I'm gonna shut up, I see you, you exist, that expression, sabona, sincona, when the Zulu people say, I see you, sabona, they don't mean I, they mean I, we, we, my ancestors, we are my people, we, my angels, we, my deities, all of this community sees you and your community. It's not even singular in the vision. It's plural right there. That's
2: really beautiful. There's, um, Eric and I are in a class together with Professor Jacob Olopona at Harvard, and it's an African spirituality and the challenges of modern times class. And one of the things that um, we just visited this week in class was the concept of um, how nature and ecology is an essential part of spirituality. And this, this belief um, that many African traditions have that if you harm the earth, that it's going to cause a ripple effect. Right. And it's it's interesting to think that Christians once came to colonize and, and looked at that as heretical, right? And now we are living in a world of climate change, we are seeing that humans have made ripple effects that are causing global catastrophe, right? And so this wisdom was always right. Right, and they always warned us, and we never listened. Right, and so it's just it's interesting um, to think about those things and and to make those connections. That when we invite other people to learn from their traditions and to share their traditions, rather than forcibly convert them or see only from our way, um, we improve all of our vision. Right, we we create a bigger and broader imagination. I want to end on on a last question because we have five minutes left. And I, I really do want this to be, there are a lot of folks who listen to this show who message me that they haven't been to church in decades or years. Um, they've turned away from religion altogether. A lot of folks who listen who are atheist or agnostic at best, obviously that is their business. If that works for them, I'm very happy for them. But I think they're listening to this show because they're curious about what it might mean to be spiritual in a sense that feels aligned with their politics, the way they exist in the world and who they are in the world. Um, would any of you like to share any words of wisdom um, for those folks? Any words of, of comfort in, in these times?
3: Mm. I, I'll say that um, in my in my darkest hour, when I was most disconnected from the church and and very much from notions of Christianities, I found um, I found resolve and strength in. The writings of Black feminists, Black lesbian feminists. I mean, I remember Kambahi Weaver Collective Statement and how that really grounded me. Um, I, the words of June Jordan, the words and mentorship of Cheryl Clark. I found spirit in um, Black gay clubs where house music is playing in, in the projects of Newark, New Jersey. And spirit was present, present as bodies were moving, as people were sweating together. Um, and I guess what I would say is spirit you know, the, the God don't stop talking at, at Revelations in the sort of Christian sense. You know, the word of God, quote unquote, doesn't stop, right, in this 66 book of the Bible. Like, God continues to speak. Spirit continues to speak. Our ancestors continue to speak and are present in so many ways, present in Black feminism our womanism, present in the Black queer political practices that I've been and movements that I've been— on the street and spirit is still moving and even if spirit is sometimes you don't even find spirit in some of the four walls of the institutional church and there have been many churches that have been closed to the possibility of radical movement we walk down streets and process it on streets and where you got the churches that with the doors closed but spirit was out on the streets so i would say we don't always have to search for it in a place that we think it is partly when so many of those spaces are themselves in search of spirit and you can you can grab hold of spirit in so many other ways. Um, and some of the work that we are all engaged in, spirit's present in that too.
1: That's so beautiful, Darnell. And I, and,
4: I, and I agree with everything everyone said. I will also offer to you all, find you a song. In my lowest point, when I just really, I was, I feel like Miss Celia, I was feeling mighty low, I was feeling mighty bad. I heard Jasmine Sullivan's song, Masterpiece. And that song really helped to let me understand that in spite of it all that I am yet a masterpiece and so I would encourage you to find a song that speaks to your spirit and I don't give a damn about the secular and the sacred because it's all spirit and get you a song and you play it and know that the very spirit as Alice Walker talks about somebody in your lineage wanted you to survive so know that, that that song will minister to you from those who love you here in the physical and even beyond. And you play that song until the words that you hear become manifested in your spirit. And that is why I know I'm here at Harvard Divinity today because I never would have imagined. I felt mighty low about myself. But as I heard the words of Jasmine Sullivan, I began to understand that I am a masterpiece. And that gave me the strength to go forward. So I admonish you to find a song, sing it, Live by it and know that you are a masterpiece.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. All of you, thank you so much. Mr. Darnell Moore, Reverend Jackie Lewis, Reverend Erica Williams, the lovely Megan Watterson. I really appreciate you coming with open hearts and open minds and, of course, your beautiful spirits to have this conversation with me. Thank you so much
3: for inviting me.
5: Thank you. Thank you you so much.
2: Okay, that's all we have for our show today. I hope you enjoyed it and make sure you tune in next week. Same time, same place for more Unholy Goodness. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is me, Philip Picardi. Our producer is Leslie Martin and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our editors are Kareem Duwadi, David Grinbaum, and Sarah Gibalaska. The theme music is by Taka Yasuzawa.